Welcome to episode 150 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux news. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. And if you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we've got a ton of news to cover with some big news from Audacity, and that the project has been acquired by the Muse Group. Ubuntu 16.04 reaches end of life. Well, sort of. Then we'll check out some great hardware news from IBM and also from Star Labs. In the app news this week, we've got new releases from Muse Digital Audio Workstation, not necessarily related to Muse Group, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, Caden Live 2104, QEMU 6.0, and so much more. We're also going to do a follow-up to some news we covered last week related to Humble Bundle, and so much more, including a new version of Wine and Proton, and even a milestone for the Linux kernel to celebrate. All that and much more coming up on this week's episode of Twill, your weekly source for Linux. Good news. Up first in the show this week, we're going to celebrate something that is really cool. The Linux kernel has reached over 1 million Git commits. So this is kind of a milestone, which really it's a a cool milestone in addition because this year is also the year the Linux kernel turns 30 years old. So that's really cool. And we will be doing something to celebrate the 30 years of Linux. Uh, I'm not quite sure yet what we're going to do, but we are going to do something. And if you want to help figure it out what we should do, then check out the DLN forum thread that I will link in the show notes if you would like to provide any suggestions and whatnot. Uh, but now the 1 million g- commits is just really cool. It's it's very crazy to think about like a million commits. But I can without a doubt tell you that there are a lot more commits that have been added to the kernel that we don't know the exact number. We know that it's 1 million git commits, but there were, git, there were com- commits to the Linux kernel prior to using git. Uh, the kernel was in development for many years, before Git. In fact, for those who don't know, uh, Linus Torvalds is also the creator of, of Git originally, and he created it specifically to because he didn't like the options that they were using before with the Linux kernel. This means that there's about 14 years of commits prior to Git, so the actual amount of commits in general is, uh, well, we I don't know. Uh, I'm not even sure if they've stored that information or not, but it'd be really cool to know. So 14 years you can pretty much assume that it's a lot more than 1 million. But still, a million is fantastic, and it's really that's another reason of why Linux is such an impressive project. And now, I know, I kind of feel like I've said this a million times at this point, but if you want to learn more, link in the show notes. Up next in the show is some really interesting news from the Audacity project, and that Muse Group has announced the acquisition of Audacity. So Muse Group already owns the music notation software MuseScore and also Ultimate Guitar. And now this has raised some questions related to this news with, for example, how can you purchase an open source project? And also, will this project of Audacity stay free and open source, among other questions? Well, the head of strategy at Muse Group, Daniel Ray, uh, commented on this, saying that Audacity will remain 100% free forever with no uh, feature tiers or limitations. Just as MuseScore, users can expect optional cloud services like file storage, sharing, etc. But such capabilities are optional, and the software is fully featured and fully functional without this. So this is really interesting because the Muse Group is quite new. Uh, It's kind of like, like basically Ultimate Guitar was founded in 1998, and Multimate Guitar essentially became 
uh, it became Muse Group recently as a as an organization. Uh, Nadenov also acquired uh, Muse Score in 2017. Nadenov being the name of the person who started Ultimate Guitar, and will continue. And Nadenov will also be continuing with the role of being a chairman for this Muse Group organization. So. Nadenov also said that this move is a natural progression in our evolution as a company, allowing us to better support a collection of brands aligned around a shared purpose to continually improve the quality of life for ordinary musicians. Now, uh, Tantacruel, I think that's how you say it, Tantacruel, uh, is a YouTuber who posted something on their channel. This is uh, who also was a part of Muse Group, saying that uh, this is the person who used to be the lead of Muse Score, but is now going to be uh, in a different role, being, being the head of uh, being a uh, the responsibilities of being like a head of creative tools for Muse Group, which includes Muse Score and Audacity and that sort of stuff. They posted a really interesting video on their channel. I'll have that linked in the show notes if you want to check it out. And they've also talked about the plans for Audacity as this new acquisition has happened. So they have they haven't said about a lot of things, but they have mentioned two things specifically about usability improvements and also non-destructive editing, which is awesome. Uh, I for those who are not familiar with what that means. There are certain aspects in whether it's video editing or audio editing or image editing and that sort of stuff where some things can be done destructively, which that what means is that you do something and the next time you, you know, you save it, but the next time you come back to that software, you can't go back and still do an undo and that kind of thing. Whereas non-destructive means you can go back at any time and make changes on any element. So non-destructive is a very, very important thing regardless of what type of editor it is. So that is really cool to see that they're working on making that a part of Audacity. Uh, also, in addition, Nadenov revealed plans in the video to contribute to the project and hire senior developers and designers. So, for example, making some UX changes and that sort of stuff might be coming up in, release, in some upcoming releases. Uh, there's already been some drama around this news, though. I mean, some people were kind of like curious about this thing happening overall. But... Well, there was a pull request that was submitted to be added to Audacity, which adds telemetry capturing to the software. Now, naturally, this raised some eyebrows, and we've received a response to this as well from Muse Group. So they say, Dear all, due to the large amount of worry about this PR, we, uh, which we completely understand, we want to clarify exactly what is going on. Telemetry is strictly optional and disabled by default. No data is shared unless you choose to opt in and enable telemetry. Telemetry only works in the builds made by the GitHub CI from the official repo. Uh, if you are compiling Audacity from source, we will provide a CMake option to enable the telemetry code. This option will, will be turned off by default. So uh, real quick, personally, I'm okay with the uh, limited telemetry concept when used to improve software. This is what they are wanting to add this in to you know, find out about what how it's being used and how they can improve it and that sort of stuff. And I think the vilification of telemetry as a whole, which happens in the community a lot, anytime it's ever mentioned is I think rather misguided because not knowing how your software is used and stuff like that. I mean, you basically have to, you know, guess or take shots in the dark about what decisions you make. And that's just not an efficient way to make decisions on how to build software. So ultimately, I think telemetry can easily be a good thing when done right. But there are some concerns with this particular implementation that some have pointed out. Uh, those issues being the choice of providers being Google and Yandex. So Muse Group has responded to these concerns regarding the choice of providers and says, 
We do not incorporate cross-site tracking, limiting the ability to identify the user both uh, by both Google and Yandex. Yandex would only receive the application opened event to help us estimate the size of the user base. Google would only receive A, session start and end events, B, errors for debugging, C, file formats used for import and export, D, OS and Audacity versions, and E, use of effects, generators, and analysis tools to prioritize future improvements. Now, these things are uh, theoretically anonymized, so it's not individualized, individual recognized for who you, who you are and that sort of stuff. So it is; those are things that are valuable for uh, learning things about the software to improve it, especially the whole size of the user base. That's a very important thing that is not considered in the open source world very much and also not considered in the Linux world very much, which is something when people say, like, how many people are using Linux? Oh, we don't know. There's no way to tell because this is not a thing that's typically done. So that's one of the reasons why a telemetry aspect of finding out what the user base size is important. Now, the Google thing and the Yandex thing, I mean, eh, that's a, okay, that's, that is weird. They say that they are they are considering replace they will consider replacing Google and Yandex with another service. They say if we find one that fulfills our requirements, and they do want people to continue to give suggestions for alternatives if you know of one and that sort of stuff. Uh, and I'll have links in the show notes for more information about how you can su- suggest it to the GitHub and that sort of stuff. And just to reiterate, the telemetry is completely optional and disabled by default, which is important because there's the difference between opt-in and opt-out. And in this case, it's opt-in, so you have to choose to give it. Now, in my case, I typically like to give uh, telemetry to software so that they can help improve it. Although with the Google aspect and stuff, I'm kind of iffy and I don't know whether I would or not. So I, I don't know. You can make your you can choose your own uh, path or choose your own adventure in regards to that part. So most of the time, I think telemetry is quite good and is very valuable. But I can understand why people would have an issue with this particular implementation. So anyway, so MuseScore, if you're not familiar, is the uh, notes uh, is a notation app for scores, which is really interesting because uh, MuseScore was acquired four years ago by the Muse Group and has seemingly only improved while continuing to be open source. So the track record suggests that it should be fine, and but we will have to wait and see, of course. Now, I think Audacity is a very important open source project, and that's I mean that's kind of an obvious thing to say, but and I hope for the best for it. And based on what happened with MuseScore, I am optimistic that this could be a very good thing for Audacity, especially if they put more developers and designers like they said they, were, they would do on Audacity to modernize it. Like, because they have some, uh, let's say, dated visuals. And if they could update it, make it more modern and improve the functionality and that sort of stuff, I think this could be awesome for Audacity in the open source community. But we'll see. If you'd like to learn more about this particular news, I'll have links in the show notes. Up next in the show, Ubuntu 16.04 has reached end of life. I mean, okay, not technically end of life, because there is the extended security maintenance part, or ESM, which will extend its life to uh, April 2024. However, the the five-year period of the LTS has completed. That's, that ended in April 30th, 2021. So the reason is that if, if uh, you wanted to get the extended security maintenance or ESM support, you have to 
uh, join Ubuntu Advantage for infrastructure program, which would extend it to 2024. And I think there are a couple, I think you can have up to three uh, installs for free, but after that you have to pay, uh, depending on what version you're using, like desktop versus server and whatnot. But in this case, we're talking about like desktop. So I think it's like 25 bucks per desktop, which is not a ton of money, but so, but at the same time, it's still a, a barrier that I would kind of, that's why I'm saying it's not technically end of life, but it might as well be for most people. So now this is interesting, not only because uh, it's the, you know, an LTS that's going out of, of support in terms of, of the LTS factor, but it's the uh, 1604 was the first Ubuntu to support ZFS and snaps, which is interesting, but it's also the last version of Ubuntu that used Unity in terms, I mean, obviously there was also the 16.10 and whatnot, but those, that one didn't really count because it's not an LTS, so it was already uh, deprecated years ago. But the uh, 16.04 Unity version is like the last version of, of Ubuntu that has Unity as the default, and therefore kind of the last re- version of why they, or like the last reasoning for them to be maintaining Unity. And as soon as uh, you know, I, I would assume that they're going to put Unity in a back burner heavily at this point because they already did do a back burner thing working on GNOME and that sort of stuff. But heavily now that it's in a, it's no longer an LTS support. So even the basic maintenance will probably not happen unless it's like a big security hole or something like that. But even if that does happen, you would still need to have the extended security maintenance package in order to get it. So effectively. I'd say Ubuntu is probably uh, done with Unity. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I think, now this is a hot take that I think a lot of people will disagree with me, and I understand that, but I think Unity is one of the best DEs that Linux has ever had, and for a variety of reasons. I mean, there's there's stuff like the Unity Dash was really cool, the global menu system, the indicator system that they built uh, to, to work with system tray icons and that sort of stuff. But uh, the biggest one and my favorite feature is HUD. Now, HUD stands for Heads Up Display, which really has nothing to do with what its functionality is. So the name didn't really help much at all in terms of like what it did. Uh, so I'm going to explain that really quickly. But before we get to that, I also wanted to mention that the global menu was a really cool functionality because they built it to work with GTK and Qt apps and a bunch of other stuff. So it was very extensively supported. And also Unity had really good multi-monitor support and it was just nicely polished. I mean, you might not like the visuals now because it's quite dated in terms of like design elements and stuff, but you could always just update those things like the Ubuntu Unity Remix has updated them to a more modern style, but still using Unity 7, which is interesting. Now, that's also kind of interesting, like what's going to happen with the remix, because if Ubuntu is not maintaining it, will the remix be able to do so? Uh, that's, you know, those are those are, those are are questions that are just up in the air right now. Uh, there's no actual answers yet, but I'll keep you informed if I found, find out more in the future. But the HUD system is so good. It's so good. So if you're not familiar... The HUD system has nothing to do with what it means, where what it does is that you know how you're using an application and you hit Alt-F to to go to the file menu or Alt-E for the edit menu or V for the view menu and that sort of stuff. This is called the main menu of an application. And now every application has some functionality built into this main menu. Now it could be 
a Qt-based application where it has all all the main menu available and accessible as you would expect from like the legacy traditional style of applications, but also it could be using a hamburger menu style, like for example, new uh, versions of Kirigami applications or the GTK3 and GTK4 applications that GNOME makes have a lot of hamburger menu usage. Now, these menus are essentially the same thing, it's just the way they're oriented is different, but the contents uh, effectively have the same level of stuff. Now, what's really cool about the HUD is that it takes these menus and makes it accessible to the DE itself. So all you have to do is hit a shortcut, which was Alt at the time. You hit Alt and you just type in something. So for example, let's say you wanted to blur an image in GIMP. You just hit Alt, type in blur, and bam, there you go. That is a functionality that is super cool. It's hard to explain without showing it. So maybe I'll do a video about like why Unity was cool. Uh, but anyway, I thought it was worth, you know, giving a nice send-off to it, because I do think Unity uh, was a DE that was very underappreciated and was quite good, and uh, it's unfortunate that it ended. Also unfortunate that they chose GNOME instead of Plasma. There's a video on my channel about that if you want to learn more. I'll link that in the show notes. But yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, I guess uh, press F to pay respects to... Ubuntu 16.04. Up next in the show, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do a lightning round of distro news because this episode is just packed with news. There's a lot of stuff, and I wanted to cover these things, but I don't really have time to cover it all individually, so we're going to do a distro news lightning round with Salient OS, Nitrix, and Ubuntu. I, I'm not sure about that one. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, Salient OS has the latest version of 21.05 released. Salient OS is an Arch-based uh, Linux distribution, which is, has rolling release, naturally, because it's based on Arch. And it, it's aimed at multimedia and gaming enthusiasts. They say that it's optimized for performance as a gaming workstation, and also that it comes in two separate editions featuring the KDE Plasma desktop, nice, and also XFCE, again, nice, as additions that you can get the Salient OS distro. Next up, we're also going to talk about Nitrix because Nitrix Project announced the release of Nitrix 1.4, which is a Debian-based distribution. It brings support for the recently released, recently released Linux 5.12 kernel. Also, it has support for KDE Plasma 5.21.4 desktop environment, along with the latest uh, KDE Gear 2104 and KDE Frameworks 5.81. And also, Nitrix is known as being like a very nice out-of-the-box Plasma experience because they put a lot of effort into the design and the layout and that sort of stuff. And I do think that Nitrix is a very nice-looking out-of-the-box uh, Plasma experience. And also, the fact that they have... Uh, the way that they, they, you know, Debian is not known for having the latest version of Plasma. So it's really nice to see, um, you know, Nitrix making that happen. And while Debian does currently have the latest version, actually, no, I don't think they have the latest, but they have a really up-to-date version. As soon as Debian 11 is released, that'll probably stop for about three years or so because Debian is not known for making updates to Plasma. So it's really cool to see a distribution based on Debian doing that work too. Now, the next one we're going to talk about in the lightning round is Ubuntu. I don't know how to how it's supposed to be said, but that's what we're going to go with. Now, this is interesting because they said that they wanted to make a distribution that is the most weeaboo as possible. This is their words. This first release is is codenamed Mochi Mango, 
and it is version 2105 based on Ubuntu 2004. Now that's weird because the the ter- the, the date versioning makes sense when the distribution is the like the origination of that distribution but you know 2004 with a version called 2105 may pe- might confuse people into thinking that it's based on 2104 and that sort of stuff but anyway that's a whole other thing so this is interesting because if you like japanese culture and you want a distribution that does that for some reason as a factor i don't know um uh, this might be something to check out. And also, while I was learning about this distribution, I for this episode anyway, I found uh, something that was... Uh, well, basically, I stumbled on a tool that some people might find helpful to have. Uh, it's called UWU. And it basically, it's, it's, it basically takes regular text and UWUifies it. That's their term as well. Um, that's how they describe it anyway. So if you want to check out any of these distributions, uh, link in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform service is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. Use a simple, intuitive, and visually rich experience to rapidly build, deploy, manage, and scale your applications. Support for many programming languages available like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby. It also has support for static sites, Docker, and container images. With the app platform, you get high scalability with zero infrastructure management. What does that mean? Well, you simply point your GitHub or GitLab repository to the app platform and let it do all the heavy lifting for you. It handles the infrastructure like app runtimes and dependencies so that you can push code to production in just a few clicks. It also automatically handles securing of your apps by creating, managing, and renewing your SSL certificates and also protect your apps from DDoS attacks. And with the app platform, you can run code with little to no customization because the app platform uses open cloud-native standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. And as a listener of This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because with DigitalOcean, they're giving you a $100 credit on their app platform by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, uh, RISC-V International has announced that they're going to be giving away some RISC-V dev boards. Actually, a thousand RISC-V dev boards. So, a new hardware platform needs to get hardware into the hands of developers to get good software support. And RISC-V International is launching a giveaway to do just that by inviting developers to sign up for a RISC-V developer board sponsored by RISC-V and contributing members. So, uh, RISC-V is an open standard instruction set architecture for those who are not aware, aware uh, ISA basically. It's based on established uh, reduced instruction set computer, aka RISC principle. And also, unlike most other ISA designs, which is the most important piece, here the RISC-V ISA is provided under open source licenses that do not require fees to use. So this is why we're talking about RISC-V, because the development and progress and growth of RISC-V, I think, is very important for having an architecture that is open source. Very cool. So there are 1,000 boards on offer for this giveaway with uh, anywhere from between like 1 gigabyte to 16 gigabyte RAM, depending on the target project. And they say that they're coming from five different companies and organizations like 
all winner, BeagleBoard, Sci5, Microchip Technology, and Rios, Rios, I'm not sure about that one. Uh, so they also say that the goal to distribute the boards in the giveaway is to have them ready sent by June 2022. They also state that the goals of the giveaway is that it's to spur innovation, enable new opportunities for the next generation of developers to work with the RISC-V ISA, provide a platform for testing to write programs that run RISC-V on RISC-V, also develop software, integrate existing software stacks, and a bunch of other stuff. And they also want people to share feedback on the product, such as ease to ease of use to integrate uh, software stacks, development, test extensions, and that sort of stuff. So they didn't ex- explain like exactly what development boards are going to be provided, but there are quite a few, like the All Winner D1 SBC, which is one gigabyte of RAM. There's also the uh, Pico board or the Beagle 5 board. Uh, there's also the Polar Fire SOC Icicle which is a, an, a, a really interesting thing. It it's a pentacore thing. So it has like uh, a pentacore, which is uh, the CPU. And it also has a FPGA fabric for the RAM, which is also, I mean, I'll have some links in the, in, if you want to learn more about what these things mean. But they also have the Sci-5 Unmatched Mini ITX motherboard that's RISC-V based, which has 16 gigabytes of RAM. So that's a pretty powerful one. It's also kind of an expensive board in terms of like, you know, how much power it has and that sort of stuff in terms of like the risk five uh, availability stuff. So to have that included in this giveaway is awesome. And if you want to apply, you can fill out uh, your contact information and stuff like that. They do use a Google form for the submission. So keep that in mind. Uh, and also they do ask about membership status to risk five organization, but the, it's not a requirement to be a member. So it is available to uh, non-members as well. Uh, and this is great to see risk five doing this because the more people with access to this hardware, the more growth that it can have and the faster the platform can become viable for the average consumer and that sort of stuff. So it's really cool to see that they're doing this. If you want to learn more about RISC-V or this giveaway, I have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about the latest release of Kdenlive 21.04. And this is the awesome open source video editor that I use to make this show. So pretty much anytime there's a new version, I like to talk about it because just like this and OBS and stuff like that, I like to talk about the things that I use to let people know what I use to make the show. And Kdenlive is a very important, critical, vital part of my workflow to make this show. So anytime there's a new version, I am so excited to see that. And some of these, there's a lot of new features in this. Uh, we're not talk about all of them because there is quite a bit, but we're gonna talk about some highlights and a couple that were really awesome to see. And I'm super happy and we'll, we'll save those for last in the topic. So, but first uh, there's a really cool feature. That's a new thing called speech to text feature, which allows it to automatically transcribe any audio to text using the Vosk speech recognition toolkit, which is really awesome. That's a fantastic feature that I can't wait to play with. Also it has support for 17 different languages and dialects inside of this by default. There's also other um, uh, models that you can install to get other languages and that sort of stuff, which is really cool. Uh, It has a media browser widget to easily browse and add your clips to the projects. It also has the uh, online resources has been converted into a widget and also improved with some more media providers and that sort of stuff like Pexels and Pixabay and some other stuff. Uh, Zoom bars have now been uh, added to the timeline, which is cool because if you want to be able to uh, drag a a slider at the bottom, you can do that by uh, and also make it zoom in. I prefer the shortcut, which is, for those who don't know, uh, control plus and minus. And I'm pretty sure control mouse wheel does it too. I don't remember, but I mean, there's so many cool things about 
uh, Caden Live, including lots of cool um, shortcuts. And in this latest release of 2104, see how I did that? There's key binding information that has been added to the bottom left of the status bar to make it easier to find what the keyboard shortcuts are for different actions. So you hover over a functionality in the UI, and if it has a shortcut, it will tell you what it is in the bottom left. Which is really cool. They've also gonna. They also did a, a timeline overview with a visual rehaul overhaul with more and better looking guides and marker colors and that sort of stuff, which is nice to see. But the two things that I'm super excited about and I can't wait to play with it more and do a bunch of tests with animations and whatnot is the improved keyframe panel, which is really cool because it makes it possible to uh, manipulate your keyframes inside of your effects and for like your transform effects and all sorts of stuff, but. Most importantly, there's been a couple things added in the keyframe panel, but the most important are two things. The duplicate a selected keyframe. Really nice to see that. makes It's going to streamline a lot of stuff. Also, move multiple keyframes at once. Now, that one is fantastic. That's one of the things that I've wanted for a while, and to see it happen is just so exciting. I can't wait to play with that. Also, there's the effect zones. That's the other big thing that I want to talk about. And you might not know what that is, so I'll briefly explain. Um, this gives you the ability to apply effects to a track or a timeline region rather than directly to a clip. Now, this is awesome because it means you won't have to do like copy and paste effects from one clip to another. Now you can just create a region that you want to apply the effect to, put the clips in that region, and bam, they're applied. Such a cool concept, and I'm so happy to see that added to Caden Live. Uh, every time there's a new version, always excited. So uh, if you want to check out the my favorite video editor, open source video editor on Linux, then check out the links in the show notes below for Caden Live 2104. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about a DAW or a digital audio workstation that just got a big release, and that is Muse. 4.0 has been released. Now, this is a, a digital audio workstation that is both for audio and MIDI. It's most notably for the MIDI support because it is a full-featured MIDI and audio sequencer with support for recording and editing functionality. It also has plugin support and automation tools, which is really cool. Now, this is a big update. This is actually more than 700 commits since the last release of Muse. And in addition to some uh, bug fixes and improvements and stuff, they've also completely revamped the user interface that features uh, tabbed UI with docs supporting uh, the common utility editors like the event list, uh, marker list, and also the master track list, as well as a redesign on the themings because they have an all-new dark theme with lots of uh, icon in, in adjustments, and they're even doing a vector format for the icons, which is really cool. For those who don't know, vector uh, icons means that it's non-destructive, and also that means that it's kind of infinitely scalable, which is a fantastic uh, format to be using on an application in this case uh, because it means that you can resize the, the window and all the elements look crisp at all times, which is always nice. And also, they've added many new toolbars for quick access to common operations, new keyboard shortcuts to make your workflow faster, improved high DPI support. They've also introduced the support for app images, which is really cool. So you can get an app image for the uh, regular release versions and also bleeding edge development version if you want to check that out. Uh, many cool things. And I always like to see universal app formats being used on various different applications because you know it makes it easier for people to try out these new versions because if you're waiting on your distribution to make a new release of the version, you might have to be waiting from 
you know, a few weeks to even a few months, or in some cases, for some distributions, a couple years. So I like saying the universal formats used as often as possible because I think that they are very important for the growth of the ecosystem. So again, well done on that, uh, Muse. So if you want to check out a MIDI audio sequencer, that sort of thing, check out Muse 4.0. Links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about a very important uh, piece of the virtualization stack for Linux, and that is QEMU or QEMU. I'm not sure what you're supposed to say. Anyway, QEMU 6.0 has been released. This release contains over 3,300 commits from over 260 authors, which is a big release. And there's also a lot of cool stuff in here. For example, performance improvements, experimental multi-process device emulation support, AMD SEV-ES encrypted guest support, and other virtualization improvements. So we're going to talk about a few of these in more detail. So first of all, let's talk about uh, QEMU can now be built with link time optimizations or LTO and also supports LLVM control flow integrity or CFI. Now, what are these things? So link time optimization is a type of program optimization performed by a compiler to program at link time. This is essentially relevant in uh, certain programming languages that compile programs on a file by file basis and then link those files together rather than all at once, making it faster performant. There's also the C the CFI thing, which is the control flow integrity. Now this is important because uh, this is a term that uh, relates to computer security techniques that prevent a wide variety of malware attacks from redirecting the flow of execution of a program. So it's really nice to see that QEMU has support for both of these things. Now they also have a new experimental option for supporting out of process device emulation. Now this basically is a multi-process concept for QEMU. It's in experimental, like I said, uh, but the goal for this is to have multi-process QEMU to run emulated devices in separate processes to increase overall security rather than having one large monolithic QEMU process as it is now. Now, another thing that they added is the AMD SEV ES encrypted guest support or AMD's secured encrypted virtualization. That's what the SEV means. So it uses a key per virtual machine to isolate guests and the hypervisor from one another to add improvements to the security aspects of the virtualization, which is just awesome to see. And there's also a lot more in the changelog, a ton of stuff, because uh, I, I can only mention a few of these things, but there's a lot of stuff in there. And if you'd like to learn more about that, you will find links in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. So Bitwarden is a password manager, which is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, what it does is basically provide a bunch of tools that are just really nice, convenient, but also provide security on top of it by using a secured vault to store your passwords, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do that. I use Bitwarden every day, all the time, because it is just fantastic. There's actually things about like, you know, save my password or remember me next time and that sort of stuff. I don't even need to do that anymore, which is a better security factor because you're not saving cookies to remember that stuff because Bitwarden makes it really easy to 
in automatically put in the data because I don't have to do it. That is fantastic. It also gives you access across many different types of devices like your web browser or your mobile apps and desktop application, even on the command line if you want to do that. And Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices so you know you're the only person with access to that data. And so Bitwarden is, in addition to all of these cool things, Bitwarden is a password manager that I use and trust because in addition to all of those, it also is 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source, which means the features and security of their infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community and so much more. They also do third-party security audits where they hire firms to test the code and make sure it is as good as possible. So lots of great stuff. And in addition to that, they also have lots of cool features in their premium account, which by the way, starts at less than $1 per month. That's right. For just $10 per year, you can get started with a premium account where it gives you one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time password, priority customer service, and so much more. So make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com DLN to get peace of mind knowing that your passwords and sensitive data while uh, it's, all, it's all protected and stuff like that while also supporting a company that truly gets open source. Sign up for their $10 per year account to get all of these extra features. And also it shows them that you appreciate them supporting open source and supporting the This Week in Linux podcast. Again, bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. So last week we talked about some changes coming to Humble Bundles regarding how the sliders were being removed for a much simpler two-choice model. This did not sit well with the Humble community as they were, uh, there were some tweets and some comments on Humble or to Humble 2 that were uh, negative towards this decision. Humble Bundle has responded this week by saying they have reverted this decision to bring back the sliders. In a tweet, Humble said that we want to thank everyone for their recent constructive feedback about sliders. We will be turning sliders back on today for all customers and will be exploring updates on how they are used in the future with input from our incredible community. Now, there's also a blog post that was made for this particular topic announcing that they are bringing it back. And some quotes from the blog post are, We have heard everyone loud and clear and apologize for the way these changes were rolled out. We are now taking a moment to pause, collect constructive feedback, and be more transparent about the path forward. In the coming weeks, we'll roll out the updated design, which will include sliders that work exactly as they did previously. Once the new design is live, we will continue to iterate on it, incorporating feedback from the community into its ongoing evolution. Part of that future development will include exploring different approaches to the sliders and how splits work, along with new ways to incorporate charity into other parts of the user experience. End quote. Now, I think this is good that they decided to bring back the sliders, but there are some worries that this is just reverting it because people noticed it and that they might try again in the future when people aren't paying attention. Now, whether that's true or not, that's just some people who are worried about that. Personally, I think the way the sliders allow people to take all of the money for games away from the game developers is kind of messed up. I really like the idea of being able to choose how much is given to who and that sort of stuff, but... I do think that there should be a minimum split on where it goes for each of these categories. Now, 
if except for if they want to do like you can make it where Humble doesn't get anything, I guess they they could. That's not a very good business decision. But if they want to do that, then okay, sure, whatever. But I just don't think it's fair for people to get games for donating money to charity. That's kind of weird. If you just want to give it to charity, then do that. If you want to get games, the developers should get something for that because game development is rather difficult thing to do. So. I'm not a fan of the idea of people just taking the games and giving the devs nothing, which was apparently a common thing to do because a lot of people were annoyed that they wouldn't be able to do that anymore. It never even occurred to me to try that, much less do it. So it's just kind of a weird thing. Like To me, it makes more sense that at least a minimum is attached to these sliders. So if they want to keep the sliders, which is great, I think they should, they should still have a minimum saying this this is the um, the smallest amount you can give the developers. This is the smallest you can give to the charity, the highest you can give to the charity, that sort of stuff. You know, those things would be good. Having a threshold that makes it fair as much as possible. While, you know, people doing it where they get games for nothing to those developers, I'm not a fan of that. But anyway, what do you think about this news? Let me know in the comments below. I'm very interested to see, you know, what you think about, you know, them bringing it back and also my concept about like having the minimum options and that sort of stuff. Let me know in the comments below. And for more info on this particular news, links in the show notes. Up next in the show, there's some really interesting news from IBM and that they say that they have developed the world's first two nanometer chip. That's right. Forget seven nanometers. Forget five nanometer chips. IBM announced a two nanometer chip that packs more than 50 billion transistors into a package the size of a fingernail. Well, depending on whose fingernail, I guess. Or Well, anyway, or like which finger, though? Anyway, moving on. So the senior vice president and director of IBM Research, uh, Dario Gill, says the innovation reflected in this new chip is essential to the creation of new, more powerful technology platforms that can help our society address major challenges from climate and sustainability to food scarcity. So this is interesting in general because I didn't ever expect to see two nanometers really in my lifetime. But to see it's possible, you know, this soon is really cool. Uh, but the real game changer for this is that it's for the for the data centers, that's going to be a big change. So they say that it promises up to 45% higher performance over the current generation of data center chips. But in addition to the higher performance compared to these the older 7 nanometer process nodes, uh, IBM is saying that it's, it's claiming 75% greater efficiency in maintaining the same performance. So IBM is saying that if every data center switched from 7 nanometer processors to ones that build on its 2 nanometer process, it could save enough energy to power, this is, this is their estimate, estimation, of 43 million homes. That is a lot of power saving. So that's also going to be good in terms of like they're not, you know, necessarily, I don't know if it's necessarily wasting the power, but whatever. This is a really improve, like big improvement for data centers because data centers are huge power users in terms of like the importance of how they're existing. So, for example, you've got stuff like uh, cloud services and all that stuff is being powered by data centers. So it, it, it's a big factor there uh, or tiny factor because it's two nanometers. Uh, anyway, IBM is not new to these kinds of things either. They were among the first to develop both seven and five nanometer chips, and IBM is set to deliver its first crop of chips based on its seven nanometer process for the Power 10 generation uh, very soon, at the end of the, the year. So uh, it's expected in quarter four for this year to have the seven nanometer process uh, chips being available. 
Now, I know that's, you know, comparing 7 to 2 and it just saying the 7 is now available. Well, the chip is more of a proof of concept than production-ready process. So they expect to produce the first chips based on this new manufacturing process sometime in 2024. So while it is really cool and really impressive, it is also a few years away. But at the same time, I wanted to cover it because this is just really cool news. Uh, one, I didn't even think it was going to be possible at all to have a two nanometer based chips. So awesome. And uh, yeah, if you want to learn more about this, I'll have links to the announcement for IBM as well as a couple other things in the show notes below to check that out. So again, links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to continue on with the hardware news with the Star Labs new Linux laptop, the Starbook Mark V or MKV. Now, this is available for pre-orders right now, and they have they say that they expect shipments to be by the end of June. Now, this is a laptop that has a 14-inch LED backlit matte IPS display, and it does it has a 1080p resolution at 157 ppi or pixels per inch. Now. I'm not really excited to see the 1080p because I would prefer it to like a 2K or higher because the you know the, the the manufacturing of the displays these days are not really that high quality with 1080p. They're they're fine. They're good, especially with an IPS style display. IPS is a better technology than the uh, LCD style and that sort of stuff. But I, or TN, that's what they're called. I would prefer to see 2K because the quality of those displays are just much better. That is something I learned from Hardware Addicts because uh, we talked about this kind of thing for monitors in one of the episodes. I'll have it linked in the show notes below if you have never listened to that podcast. It is a fantastic podcast that I am uh, one of the co-hosts of. I mean, I'm not really a hardware person. I'm more of like on the show to learn and that sort of stuff. And I'm, I want to be a hardware enthusiast. I'm not one yet, but who knows? Maybe someday. Uh, but anyway, if you're interested in hardware in any way whatsoever, check out that podcast because it is fantastic. You'll learn lots of stuff. We also have uh, Wendy on that show. Where, by the way, I don't know if I said it, but Ryan is the main host of that show, telling you all the things about what's happening with the hardware world. But also we have Wendy, who's a hardware enthusiast, and she gives you so much great information about uh, photography and cameras and that stuff in her camera quarter. So I guess this is kind of like a quick plug for the podcast. But anyway, check it out. Hardwareaddicts.org if you want to check it out. So... This back to this laptop. So the laptop comes with a, the processor. It's a 2.4 gigahertz dual core Intel Core i3 a 1110G4. It just rolls right off the tongue, and it can be turbo boosted up to 4.1 gigahertz with six megabyte cache, as well as being configured to get a quad core or 2.8 gigahertz quad core Intel Core i7 1165G7. Again, just such a smooth name. But it can be uh, boost clocked up to 4.7 gigahertz with 12 megabytes of cache. So there's also a storage that starts at 240 gigabytes up to one terabyte if you want to configure it that way. With the RAM starting at 8 gigabytes being able to be configured up to 64 gigabytes of RAM. This is DDR4 memory, by the way. And the uh, graphics for this is Intel UHD G4 graphics. It has a lot of different ports. For example, it's got the USB 3.0, 2.0, USB Type-C, and also an HDMI port, 
as well as it has the standard stuff like a, a webcam. It also has a micro SD card slot, which is not standard anyway. You, this was rare to see actually most of the time. Uh, there's also a 3.5 uh, millimeter audio jack, which is, you know, nice to see that, you know, some laptops are choosing to opt out of that for some reason, but whatever. And it comes with a 50.9 watt hour battery. It has a backlit keyboard with a glass covered trackpad, which is pretty interesting. And also there's multiple options for different Linux distributions by default. So there's Ubuntu, Zubuntu, Linux Mint, Zorin, MX Linux, Manjaro, and also elementary OS. So any of those things can come by default in this laptop. So that's cool. The base model starts at 777 uh, uh, British pounds or 929 USD. Uh, it's, I, I don't know if they ship to the US or not, but they do have the US keyboard layout. So I assume they do. And there you go. So that's why I converted it. But uh, Star Labs has a very interesting history. For example, they designed their own laptops themselves. They are, they're not just rebranding other products. There's a lot more to it, uh, the, how they do it. There's also a lot more to the company as well. If you want to learn more about Star Labs, the company, then check out the really great article and interview on frontpagelinux.com because FPL's Eric Londo interviewed Sean Rhodes, the technical project lead at Star Lab Systems, on the, his uh, Linux++ column. So check that out. I'll have that linked in the show notes if you want, if you want to learn more about Star Labs. Really cool stuff. Links for the latest uh, announcement for the Starbook, Mark V, as well as links to the Front Page Linux interview with the Star Labs company. Links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about some very important projects, Wine and Proton. So there's been some releases recently for Wine with 6.8 and Proton 6.3-3. And for those who are not familiar, Proton is like a derivative of Wine. It's And it's made specifically for improvements of games and that sort of stuff. It is a collaboration between Codeweavers and Valve to make Proton. And it's just fantastic I am a huge fan of Proton. I actually recently switched to playing a game with Proton that I was playing a native version. And turns out some of the stuff that you can do, like the workshop that's in Steam, was not did not function properly with the native version because they were not, you know, making those workshop maps for that version of the game. And then I switched it to the Proton version just to see, and the workshop maps work just fine, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool thing to see that that's possible. Anyway, so Proton 6.3-3 has been updated. They updated the uh, VKD3D Proton version, which is also a fork of VKD3D or the development branches for Proton's uh, Direct3D12 implementation. They also added support for playing uh, Mountain Blade 2 Bannerlord and also fixed a lot of different games support for like uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, Age of Empires 2, and many other games as well. And then we're going to just jump over to Wine 6.8 because there's been, it's it's not a huge update, it's a point release, but there are some cool things that happened and I wanted to talk about. So 6.8 has uh, libraries installed into, uh, makes it possible for libraries to be installed into architecture-specific subdirectories, which means that you can have different architectures uh, in the structure of how you use the Wine applications or the Wine uh, compatibility layer, which is great. There's also the secure or secure, it's not, it's not spelled that way, it is custom, whatever. Uh, S-E-C-U-R, so I assume it's Secure32, uh, library converted to PE, support for map object and JavaScript, and also various bug fixes. But the reason, the thing I wanted to talk about was the Secure32 library conversion to PE, because this is pretty interesting. 
uh, because PE is the is required to support API hooking. So custom PE loaders or integrity checking that some applications use would need this PE conversion for this part. And for more specifically, this makes it better for supporting of anti-cheat software, which is very important, especially in the Proton world and that sort of stuff, because there's a lot of games that would work perfectly fine on Proton if it weren't for the anti-cheat issues. And with this improvement and this change, this makes that more likely to solve problems for certain games, which is fantastic. I'm really happy to see that. If you want to learn more about the latest release of Wine and Proton, I'll have links for the release notes for Wine 6.8 and Proton 6.3 in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about a project that has ended, and there's some interesting thing that happens with it. So the Termite Terminal project announced the end of the project and then also recommended users to switch to Alacrity. So uh, Termite was a keyboard-centric VTE-based terminal aimed at use uh, using within like window managers and with tiling and tabbing support like that, where the window manager itself provided those functionality. So uh, Termite developers say that you should use Al- Alacrity instead of Termite. It has keyboard-based selection, mode in- inspired by Termite, and Alacrity 0.8 adds a generic regex hints mode compared to Termite's URL hints mode. They also say that the user interface is very much this in the same spirit as Termite, including a very minimal user interface, delegating handling jobs and splits to the window manager like i3. Uh, Alacrity is dramatically faster than VTE, along with being significantly more robust and secure. It's written in a, mo- in a modern, safe programming language. It's Rust, for those who don't know. It's uh, the Rust language. And also it uses OpenGL for efficient rendering. We'll get to that in a second. They also say that we strongly recommend against trying to continue the development of Termite with a fork. You should contribute to Alacrity instead. VTE, this is their words, VTE is a terrible base for building a modern, fast, safe terminal emulator. It's slow, brittle, and difficult to improve. Again, their words. VTE is a library implementing a terminal emulator widget for GTK, for those who don't know what that is, so it's libvte. And I just want to clarify that the VTE statements, again, are from the termite devs, not myself. I I do not have any experience developing with that, so I do not have an opinion on that matter. However, I do have a favorite terminal emulator, if you're interested. Uh, That is, of course, console, with a K, from KDE, or Yaquake for a drop-down console, which is, both of those are great. Anyway, back to the subject at hand. Alacrity is a very interesting project because in addition to have a functionality similar to, or in even some cases, inspired directly by Termite, it has support for OpenGL rendering. Now, for those who don't know what this means, this means that Alacrity is GPU accelerated. And you may be wondering, why? Why does a terminal need to have GPU acceleration? And that's a good question. And the reason is, well, most likely the answer would be because because I want it. Now, I don't know if that's actually the reason, but there you go. I think if you want a very um, performant terminal, GPU rendering for it is a very interesting way of going about it. I think this is also a very interesting topic because it's not a very common thing to see happen. What I mean is that open source projects, well, they end all the time, right? Because maybe the developer got burnt out. Maybe they got to a state where they consider it feature complete in the project in that way. Maybe they wanted to see the project live on a farm where it can run and play. All sorts of different reasons. I don't know. You know, could it be any reason. The part that makes this topic very interesting to me is that it's not just ending with 
nowhere to turn, but they are directly recommending a replacement and even advising no one should fork this project. Now, this is kind of refreshing because let's face it, fragmentation is kind of a bit rampant in the open source ecosystem. So one project seeing another project that could be considered a better option, like stepping back and then letting the better project take more importance. That's pretty cool, actually. Uh, and if, and that, I think that's something that is a very interesting uh, thing that happens. So while if you are a Termite user and you want something similar to Termite, consider switching to Alacrity. I'll have links um, for uh, both Termite's announcements for this because this is a part of their readme on their GitHub. If you want to check out the full details of what they said, there's some more details about their opinion of VTE on there if you want to check that out. Uh, and also if you want to switch to Alacrity and check it out, I'll have links for that as well. And as far as Termite itself, again, remember to press F to pay your respects. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can go to tuxdigital.com contribute to learn more. Plus, if you become a patron via Patreon or sponsors, you can join me during the live stream in the skybox of the recording stadium to discuss stuff of like between the topics, also to hang out every week after the show and the patron-only post-show and other things. Just so be consider checking, becoming a patron. Check out tuxedo.com slash contribute to learn more. You can also support the show by ordering the Linuxes Everywhere t-shirt by going to dealinstore.com. You can also get the This Week in Linux shirt there as well. And, you know, speaking of the deal in store, you can go there to find a bunch of awesome swag like hoodies and shirts and hats and stickers and even aprons because maybe you'll want to rep twill while you grill. Again, dealinstore.com. And if you want to do so without any cost to you, you can support the show by going to tuxedo.com slash affiliates, checking all the affiliate links. So if you want to get something on Amazon or whatever, there's many, many affiliate links there for you to check out. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week by going to dealinlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another week of your weekly source of Linux good news.